Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. As we approach our 50th episode, we couldn't be more excited to present a guest who has been on our wish list from day one. Growing up, she was the best tennis player in her home country of Scotland. And while her stint playing on the pro tour was short-lived, she became a fixture in the tennis world. First as a coach, then as a parent, and then as the captain of the English Fed Cup team. And she continues to be a fiercely independent educator, ambassador of the sport, and supporter of her champion sons. While Jamie Murray won seven major doubles championships, and Andy Murray won three major singles titles and a gold medal, Judy Murray was there through it all, training them as kids and supporting them as adults. Judy is going to tell us how a dastardly trip to Spain ended her professional tennis career, but set her on a path to tennis prominence. She's going to break down the decision-making process surrounding Andy's hip injury and paint a picture of how tennis took hold in Scotland and how it can continue to grow from here. We met up with Judy in New York City as the U.S. Open was coming to a close. First of all, we're in the lobby of the Intercontinental. You know, this is one of the player hotels, one of the tournament hotels for the U.S. Open. Um, I can actually see Andy Roddick holding child uh, to the right, and um, this is a hopping lobby here in Midtown. Um, is, is this where you stay uh, each and every U.S. Open, or do you change it up? No, I've stayed in quite a few different hotels over the years. I've been coming here since 2003 for the juniors, and the junior hotel is the Grand Hyatt, which is unbelievably busy, um, but also great location beside Central Station. So when I was bringing kids across to play in that, we always stayed there. I always try and stay at one of the tournament hotels because the buses go from right outside, there's always people here, um, it's easy to have meetings, etc, etc. So uh, always in this kind of area of Manhattan, around Lexington, there's there are a lot of tournament hotels. The woman you hear is one of the most prolific women in tennis, the well-known mom of Jamie and Andy Murray. Jamie is the last Murray standing in the tournament. He's playing the final of mixed and the semi of the doubles. Uh, Judy Murray, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So it is the last few days of Stan Smith's September over at our Patreon page. Here the man, win the shoes, help support under review. If any of these things sound good, please head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron of the podcast. Not only do you get to help us keep the episodes coming, you'll get early access to my interview with the one and only Stan Smith and be entered into a chance to win a pair of brand new Stan Smiths. Just sign up by the end of the month at any level to be entered to win. Do it at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. It's Stan Smith September. Hear the man, win the shoes, and help support Under Review. We appreciate all of your support. Uh, let's get back to Judy Murray. We do a five-set format. Our first set, we call it the off-the-court report. Aside from being here to support your son, what are your other obligations during this Grand Slam? I always tell people the Grand Slam, it's like a business convention. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, uh, this year I haven't had too many other obligations. Um, I came over thinking that both of the boys were going to be playing and then Andy decided that he wasn't quite up to the fitness he needed to play best of five sets. So. He opted not to come after all. So here to support Jamie primarily, but on Tuesday of the first week, I went up to Greenwich in Connecticut and I ran a coaches workshop with the PTR for a number of their coaches and clinicians um, at the Burning Tree Country Club, which was uh, fun. Burning Tree Country Club is a dynamite spot. It's a terrific, beautiful club. 
that must have been a nice experience. Yeah, it was uh, really nice. Uh, we don't have clubs like that um, in Scotland, you know. It. So for me, whenever I go somewhere like that, which has a mix of the sports, predominantly um, golf and tennis and many tennis courts, it's like a complete and utter luxury and I get terribly jealous of the amazing facilities that, that you've got over here. You also see much more now um, the introduction of paddle tennis and pickleball. What's your opinion of paddle? Well, I love uh, I love both of them, paddle and, and pickleball. I've tr I've tried both of them. Um, I think they are both great as additions for clubs uh, in terms of getting new people into play. It's much more sociable. It's much more doable. Smaller spaces for people. Um, ball doesn't go out of play, etc., etc. Um, I think for older people as well who might struggle to cover the whole size of the tennis court as they get less uh, physically able, that it's a, it's a great addition, it's, uh, it's really fun. There's a few different varieties of paddle in the northeast part of this country. It's a winter game. The floor is heated and they play off the fence. And then I think you see a different style in Europe, for example. Yeah, we have uh, more of their glass or um, perspex. <laughs> and and uh, it's there's like a sand on the surface. Yeah, it's like a it's like an, a carpet, like an artificial grass carpet with um, some sand or some rubber chipped elements in it. And you're a proponent. You you're good on this stuff. Yeah, I I, I like it. I think um, you know I think tennis is a difficult sport compared to some, um, and. Uh, I think that I've realized over the last probably 10 years or so that tennis is competing with so many other things for, for people's attention. You know, all the music and dance, the uh, running, the gym, exercise classes, martial arts. There's so many other things out there that we have to make our sport more fun, more accessible, more doable, more sociable. And I see paddle and pickleball as being two things that can really enhance the offering at tennis clubs to get more people in, families in particular. That's interesting. It's an add-on, not a competitor. I think you have to see it as, a, as an add-on, but I think it could become a competitor because I think it will continue to be incredibly uh, popular, increasing in its popularity. Now, I have to ask you, how much time do you spend on the court? Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the court. Um, a few years ago, I took the decision to step out of performance, out of the top end of the game, um, after I stopped being the Fed Cup captain for Great Britain. Um, working at the top end of the game can be incredibly rewarding, but it's incredibly stressful. And uh, I decided that I could have much more long-term effect on the game. Uh, by working more in grassroots and sharing everything that I'd learned over the 30 years that I've been coaching. Because I started out as a volunteer at our local club when my kids were toddlers. It was nothing to do with them and I wasn't a tennis coach. I just went over to help out a couple of hours a week. And it kind of developed into a career that I wasn't expecting at all. So I've kind of gone back to where I started. And what I do now, I have a very clear philosophy of how I think the game should be taught um, in terms of making it fun. And I teach teachers, I coach coaches, uh, sort of spreading that whole world uh, word of uh, creating games and activities that do the teaching for you. So you build the skills first before you get to the drills, you teach the movement before you get to the actual ball striking. Um, build the skills <laughs> before you get to the drills. Yeah, Don't just throw them in. No, well, it's, there's, uh, for me, there's too, tennis is too serious and too much emphasis on technique at, at the start. So when I, if I go to a court and I see somebody sta a coach standing in the middle of the court with a basket of balls and he's just, you know, firing balls and kids are standing in a long line at the back and they hit one shot and they run around and they join the back of the queue, they're not getting very many shots and it's not really teaching them what the game will demand because the game, the ball never comes out of the same place twice in a row. You're always having to read the ball, track the ball, you know, hit it, recover, adapt. You never know what height or what speed or what direction it's coming at. So. Um, how do you start a child? What's something that you'll get the kids doing to kind of get them into the mix? 
Well, for, for me, it's all about developing the hand-eye co coordination and being able to move to and from a bouncing ball. So first of all, I start out with, with, um, with young kids or less able kids. I will start out with balloons, for example, because balloons are big, they move slowly, they're brightly colored, anyone can hit them. So you go right hand, left hand, you adapt to it by hitting it with your head or your shoulders or your feet. And everyone loves balloons. Everyone loves it and it's colorful, it's bright, it makes it fun, but also everyone can do it. And in this day and age, it's so important to build confidence through success and every child can have success with the balloon. And you can start with your hands because when tennis was first invented, it was just played with the hands in a ball. The racket came in later. So my theory is that if you find things that mimic the movements that tennis is going to ask of you with your hands, it then becomes much easier to put the racket into it. And by the way, the, the racket is an extension of the arm and the hand. And when you talk about tennis, you sort of mimic the racket with the hand. So that makes a lot yeah, of sense. It is, a, it, it, it's common sense, but it's also, it's about making it doable because I think kids nowadays are less resilient than they ever were before. And if something is too difficult or they think they're no good at it, they're gonna find something else to do. Um, you have a vigorous social media situation. You have a quarter million people on Twitter what is your advice for some of us who struggle to um, crack that code? Well, I think, you know, I, I can't even remember when I started using social media, but probably about 10 years ago now. And like most people, you, you start out, you're a little bit wary of it. You don't really know what you're doing. And uh, over time, I've come to really, in, really enjoy it. But I think it's a great way of engaging with, with people who are fans of the game. You need to know why you're using it. You know, are you just using it with your friends? Are you commenting? Are you offering opinions? Are you updating people on your business? And I kind of do a, a mix of things. It, you know, it's a chance for me to talk about things I believe in in the game, where I am, what I'm doing. I post a lot of food pictures, especially desserts and cakes. And But I think it... It's up to you how you use it, and you let people see another side of you uh, and engage with you. They may never meet you, but they feel like they know you from, from social media. For our listeners, um, Judy's uh, Twitter is uh, a delight. Uh, she, she disseminates excellent information and shares articles, generally speaking, I think tennis-related. Um, and she has a... Uh, voracious sweet tooth that we'll talk about shortly um how do you sort of not engage how do, what do you what's your what's your secret i think you have to be careful um to not put out things that could be inflammatory but i put out things that i believe in you know things that relate to fairness unfairness as you say i put out articles that i think are really interesting i try to make very valid points about the women's side of, of sport, not just not just of tennis. Um, and uh, also how I feel like the game should be played, how it should be moved on. I share lots of clips of my teachings and things like that. So I've got a number of Twitter accounts. I have uh, my own foundation, so I have a foundation account. I have a girls' program called Miss Hits. I have that account as well. I have another one called Tennis on the Road. And I share different things on each of them, so I have a different following probably on uh, on each of the different accounts but my my biggest one is just my own personal account and um what's the story behind the uh i don't even know what to describe you as are you a cakeist are you a pudding uh expert <laughs> what is the what's that situation i quite like that word cakeist yeah i do um i like cake and i do love uh i do love a dessert. I think uh, as I've got older, I'm more careful how much of that that I eat. And I'm always getting comments of people saying, God, you eat so many cakes and desserts. Why are you not the size of a house? Um, but I'm, I'm very active all day long and I believe in that whole balance and everything in moderation and so forth. But it's amazing how many people love food tweets. People love food tweets. So that's my thing. And if I don't post a food a dessert or a cake tweet for a while, I will invariably get people saying to me, what's the matter with you? We haven't seen any dessert tweets for a while. <laughs> for a while. What are you doing? Are you on a diet? <laughs> Let's move into our second set. Um, this is our On the Court Report. First and foremost, I just want to touch it. What is the Andy Murray situation? We know that he chose to not play the US Open and went to Palma de Mallorca to play a challenger. Um, 
Behind my wildest dreams, I never thought I could see him playing pain-free tennis ever again. Yeah, I think he, uh, he had a rough time for a couple of years with the, with the hip injury and he, he tried lots of different ways to repair it and rehab it. And, uh, you know, in Australia in January, I mean, it really looked like um, we may have seen him playing his last match and he was in so much pain afterwards that he actually couldn't fly home for two days because there was so much inflammation in his hip and really what that told him was that if he had managed to win that match he would not have been able to play the next match and that was really the the kind of um, final um, realization I guess for him that he either, either that was the end or he needed to go and and, and have a uh, a, a fairly dramatic surgery in terms of the hip resurfacing. I saw that with my own eyes a year and a month ago when he played like a f till 4 a.m. against I think Copil, and he cried after in D.C. Yeah. I said he is he's walking bad. He's moving. He looks like he's in so much pain. It's hard to watch. Did he get bad? advice regarding what he should have been doing with his hip? I think you get, uh, you get lots of advice and you get lots of contrasting opinions and uh, you know, you, at the end of the day you, you choose which, which way you're going to go. I mean, his, his, first, um, his first response really was to try to rehab it without any surgery and when that didn't work then he had to look at, look at other options. But, you know, everybody's different you know it's not like saying do this and this will work everybody's body is different and anyway it is what it is and it, I don't think there's any point in uh, in, in going back I, yeah, I'm, sure, not, sure. I'm not somebody who looks back and sure, I, sure. I don't think he is either you just have to keep looking forward and I think that this hip resurfacing that he's had in, in January which is the same as Bob Bryan had the previous year um, has worked really well he's pain-free he's moving well he's back playing again and he only was able to start hitting again in June, so he's not really been back on the court that long. So right now, everything is just dipping the toe in the water, testing out where his fitness is at, and trying to build up towards Australia is his goal, to be ready to play in Australia as, as fit as he can be. Amazing. Now, how um, significant is your involvement? Do yeah, you, no, do I don't. I don't have to do too much anymore. I mean, obviously for, for years I was very, very involved both as a, as a parent and as a coach and then as, a, as the manager, um, you know, because when players are young, they have to be able to concentrate on what's going on on the court and in the gym and with their bodies and so forth. And you need somebody to take care of the kind of life and business um, side of things. But I think for about the last five or six years, um, I haven't had to do anything, which for me is great. But Andy got to a stage where, one, he was old enough, and two, he had enough money to be able to pay other people to do all the things that are part and parcel of the life of a, of a pro athlete. So it's allowed me to do the things that I want to do. So I was able to take on the Fed Cup role, and I now run my own programs, and, and I have a, a life of my own, which is great. So really for me, I just stress over my kids as a parent and not as the coach or the manager or anything else now, which is actually, uh, in lots of ways, it's really pleasant. But in other ways, I, I completely understand now the emotional turmoil that parents go through when they are so invested in what their kids do because they haven't got anything anything else to worry about in relation to the, the tennis because somebody else takes care of it. So when I had other jobs to do, I could always it helped me to get a balance whereas I think if when you're just seeing it with the parent size I find it much more stressful watching the matches now for example is really what I'm trying to say <laughs> so I don't I don't go so much to to watch now but did, now does he did he doesn't say mom I'm gonna have the surgery what do you think yeah well you you discuss things like that yeah. as a family of, yeah. of of course um you know and you're always on top of what's going on because you're of, of course you're involved in any big decisions in your kids life doesn't matter how how old they are but you know at the end of the day uh, he's 32 now Jamie's 33 and um, they're good at making their own decisions now obviously <laughs> which is what you want that's exactly right um, we know that you uh, watch a lot of tennis and, um, and what have your impressions been of women's tennis this year yeah I think um, I don't watch so much um, tennis as I as I used to. Um, 
I think since I took that step away from the top end of the game and, and back into the grassroots, I, and I'm not home much to watch on TV and I'm not traveling as much with the boys, so I'm not watching loads of it. But I think that this year we've seen the emergence of a number of really good young players. You know, not least uh, Naomi Osaka, Bian Bianca Andreescu. It's great to see Bencic back playing great tennis again. Um, you know, and I think the fact that there is so much unpredictability in, in the women's side of the game around who's, who's going to win, because, uh, you know, for many years, everything kind of centered around Serena and probably in some ways still does, but she is coming towards the end of her career. And, uh, you know, you, you want to see who's going who's gonna to step up, who's going to be the, uh, the one to, you know, carry the flag and drive the women's game forward. So I think, uh, you know, the, the, the young players, particularly those who have a bit of attitude and a bit of personality and that can build big, big profiles, um, because the profile of Serena Venus and Sharapova over the years as global women's sporting superstars who happen to be tennis players has been great for women's tennis. And it seems like the athleticism is skyrocketing, the ball striking, I mean, everything seems like it's on a major uptick. Yeah, I think there's, there are a lot of great players out there and it will be interesting to see who can get to the top and stay and stay at the top because, you know, over the, over the last few years, with the exception of Serena, we, we've seen players win majors, get to world number one, but nobody's ever really been able to stay there. And I think a lot of that is about learning to live at the top of the game and having the confidence um, to really take that by the scruff of the neck and say, I want to be the number one, I want to be the one that everybody wants to be. But you often find that players get to the top and then they, they actually don't like being that person that everybody wants to beat. Uh, you know, we've seen it with so many of, of, of the female players. So, you know, it's going to take somebody with a big attitude, I think, to get up there and stay there and really create a, a big platform and a big profile for women's tennis to develop from. Do you have an opinion about the coaching carousel on the women's side that we've seen beginning in the back end of last year into January? Yeah, it's... It's, it's interesting. I mean, the you know the the women's tour is dominated by male coaches, and you know we're a very different <laughs> we're a very different in character and physicality, of course. And one of the things that I campaign campaign about, or I'm very passionate about improving, is um, a career pathway for female coaches, so that we have a bit of a better balance um, on the women's side of the game, because women will always much better understand how other women think and act, how, how we tick. So that's not to say that we don't need male coaches, because of course we do, and, and male coaches often double up as, as hitting partners as well. This is, this is a big thing with the girls. I, I, I found that really quite interesting when I worked on the women's side of the game, that they much prefer to hit with a guy because there's no pressure that guys are not competition. They're stronger, of course, and, uh, and, and lo lots of good players out there. But you keep yourself emotionally secure in practice in a way that you don't... If you hit with one of the other female players, well, for a start, they want to practice what they want to practice. You want to practice what you want to practice. So if you play with a coach or a hitting partner, you can do whatever you want to do. But you, you don't have that emotional pressure or, or worry of player practice set or practice points and you lose. You know, you want to keep yourself feeling strong because in general terms, women's confidence is much more easily knocked than the guys. So I understand it from a female, a female perspective, that whole thing of if you feel good about yourself, you're far more likely to get a performance out of you. And on the same side, I think that one of these days, hopefully not too long, we'll start to see uh, traveling psychologists on the women's tour and the men's tour in the same way as we see um, physios because the mental health side of everything now is something that really needs to be addressed and helped with. And I always think that women will open up much more to other women because they understand how we react and respond to certain things and how our bodies work. So I think, um, I, I think with the coaching carousel, I think it's... It's just one of those things you see it in all sports. We see it in football in our country. You know, it's like 
if things are not working very quickly at least but you know to make a difference to a player you need to know them very well as a person first so that you know well whatever content but more about how you communicate and your body language and so forth but the one-on-one -on -one coaching situation is a very tough situation both for the player and for the coach because you're living with each other more or less 24-7 you you have to be able to get on off the court as well as on the court and um, you know when it's just one-on-one -on -one, the coach is trying to justify their existence make their presence felt do the best possible job but it's very easy to get you know when you're just looking after one player I think it's really tough on the it's really tough on the coach as well tough job tough job yeah and you're away from home for so many weeks of the year you're on the road time differences different hotel rooms etc etc it's uh, it's not an easy gig it's easy to it's easy to picture uh, a player just getting tired of even eating breakfast with that person <laughs> Never mind all the rest. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know that the life can be very lonely. Um, anyway, you know you you're out there. It's an individual sport. You're, you're traveling. You're away from family and friends for significant um, chunks of the year. So your coach becomes your traveling companion, and often the coach adopts all sorts of roles from almost like part parent, um, part friend, uh, part coach, teacher, mentor. There, there's all sorts of um, roles that the coach has to play but I think it's um, I think if you look at the players who've who have survived at the top of the game for a long time I think often they're the ones who are successful enough to be able to afford to travel with a large entourage uh, particularly of family and coaching team who become friends and they fulfill that social family side that is missing when you're on the road but very few of the, the players can afford to do that who can afford that? Exactly. Um, let's just move to the men. What are your impressions of men's tennis at the moment? Well, I think it's really been a remarkable era of, of men's tennis um, when it's, you know, a, 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 a relatively few players have dominated the major events for such a long time. And that's, you know, a remarkable um, achievement and, uh, you know, a real shout out to not just their physicality and their skills with the racket but also to their mental fortitude their ability to bring great tennis day after day after day not just on the match court but on the practice court as you know as well and I'm not sure we'll ever see that again that incredible um, domination um, but you know I think there are signs that there's some of the younger players that are that are starting to break through but will they break through and be able to sustain that kind of level of success at the top of the game. Um, we just need to wait and see. I mean, I enjoy watching Tsitsipas playing um, a lot. He seems to me to be the one who's got the most complete game. But, you know, at the end of the day, what separates those at the top from the rest of the pack is what goes on between the ears. And I think you can see already with, with him, and of course it's very early days, that, you know, he's had a, suddenly been catapulted into the stardom stakes and then, it, you know, it's one thing when you're trying to get up there and it's the adventure and the excitement and all the rest of it. And then suddenly you're up there and there's all these extra distractions and demands on you that take your time away, put pressure on you, expectation. And then it becomes, you need to learn to live at the top of the game. And that seems to be the thing that's been hard for him just in the last month or so. So you have to learn to live at it. It's the same as Verev, you we, know. We were out to dinner with Novak uh, the night of of Sitsipas's loss, and I mentioned that you know he and and, and Sitsipas was cramping, right? He cramped at about three hours in, and it was a long physical match. And Novak pointed to his head and said, "It's all mental." He said that he could tell that he was going to be in trouble early because of his breathing. He was watching the match. He said he could tell from the breathing, and he said that his mind has so much in it because he's young and he cares about, and he said, I had that same problem. Um, and I think that goes to what you were just saying, that you've got, that these, these younger players seem to, need to, seem to need to learn how to balance all those other things. Yeah, they can be incredibly distracting, you know, because you have demands from sponsors, from tournaments, 
um, from the media, from the fans, and suddenly you, you know, it's like people are taking your time, your time away. It's the same as on the court. You need to learn to live at the different levels, um, and it's the same with the life and business side of it as well. You need to learn to be able to deal with that and program your time and schedule your time, and you need to have incredible patience. And I think if you look at the way that. Um, Andy, Novak, Rafa and Roger um, deal with that side of it. They are so patient, they're so good with fans, they, they have time with the media, they have good teams around them that help them to manage their time well. So I think with the young players it's so important that they have a good team of sensible, common, common sense people around them and also family because family will, you need the family for the emotional support and the family to perhaps tell you the things that the yes men won't tell you. So, you know, who is around you is really important. And I think that, you know, when, when Andy was, was coming through, there was, there was so much of it that was just brand new to us and we didn't know and there wasn't really anybody to help us with. And you really have to take the common sense approach and you don't always get it right, but you always learn from your mistakes. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about our guest career. Mm. Where does your tennis begin? Um, I started playing when I was about 10 um, with my parents just at our local tennis club in Dumblane. My parents were both played in the club team and the county team. But in those days, you played with wooden rackets and you played on a full-size court with proper tennis balls. So you really had to be about 10 or 11 to be strong enough to hold a racket. So that was about as early as you could start back then. Now my dad sawed off the wood for me. Did you start with a sawed off? <laughs> no. No sawed off? <laughs> no, I think it was slightly slightly smaller. It was like a junior size of racket, but it was still pretty, pretty big. You started at 10 um, and you became a, a real player. How did that happen? Well, I, I learned to play with my parents, so I, this is one of the reasons that I believe so much in t a tennis being part of a family, a great family sport. So my mum and dad taught me how to play. They, they were, it wasn't that they were coaches, they just would take me down and, and play with me. And I, as I got good enough, um, then obviously I was playing with the other kids at the club and then with the other adults at the club. So there was never any, coaching was never a thing in my day and tennis was not a big thing in Scotland because we have terrible weather and you basically played in the summer and you played something else in the winter like badminton. Um, so I learned how to play the game rather than how to hit the ball. So I was tactically, always tactically very smart and I was a good athlete, but I was never a great ball striker because there was never anybody to teach me how to do that. So um, yeah, so I, I played in the club team, played in the school team, played in the county team and then played in the Scottish team. But although you can't play for Scotland, it was always just friendly matches. You, you, Scotland is part of Great Britain in tennis terms. So. It was, um, I got to about number eight in juniors in Britain. That was about the best that I did, which wasn't bad coming from Scotland and with no coaches. That's unbelievable. <laughs> eight. In, in juniors. But, you know, I was the best in Scotland for many, many years as a junior and as, a, and as an, uh, an adult. But our pool was very small. Very few people played sure. competitively in Scotland. So it, it might sound quite good, but it was, I mean, you can only beat who's put in front of you, but it wasn't. But I read that you played a little pro tennis at some juncture. I did. Um, after I left school, I, I wanted to try and play tennis. And it really, went, you know, when I think about it, it was really a bit of a pipe dream because nobody in Scotland played play tennis for a living. And my dad had his own business. My mom had my two brother, younger brothers to look after. So I kind of went off into Europe on my own and, um, and tried my hand at some of, the, some of the tournaments. But, you know, it's not so easy at 17, finding your way across Europe. Flights weren't a big thing back then. There was no mobile phones, no ATM machines, no internet. Sure. So you're coaching yourself, you're looking after yourself, you're trying to book everything. I mean, these were the days where you... You had the phone boxes and you reversed the charges for an international dial home and you picked up money from the post office in whatever city you were at. People would wire, your parents would wire you money. And sometimes Very I wonder how we even like lived. You I know, know. it's so I crazy. Know. But you, you know, you, you, it, it is what it is. You, you adapt to what you have. But I had a bad experience in Barcelona where I'd gone down to the post restaurant, which is the post office, to get money that my parents had wired. 
and I had the money in my bag on a very crowded bus. And when I got off the bus, somebody had opened my bag. It just had a flap on it and um, had taken out my, my wallet. And my wallet had my passport in it, it had my tickets, it had all the, the, the cash. That, that, and so I was there in Barcelona, not speaking any Spanish, having to f work it out for myself. Policeman, embassy, get myself home. And it really was at that point that my dad said, look, you should come home, it's too dangerous. Um, and so I went uh, home and that was the end of it. But I think a lot of what happened to me with that was that I wanted to try it. There were no opportunities, there was no infrastructure in our country. And that many years later, when I went into coaching and I got the Scottish national coach job, I really put my heart and soul into creating opportunities for the Scottish kids to develop. I just have to ask you, because I read it, that you had some, you, you interacted or played with or against uh, Marianne Simonescu. Um, is that a fact? That was it. That was there. That, that was in was Barcelona. There. Yeah, it was in Barcelona. You, and and you, um, sorry, you played her or you were friends? Fr no, I played against her. I oh, played against her. Yeah, I played against her. And what I remember about that, I don't remember too much about the match, but I remember in those days, if you won your match, you would offer your opponent a drink, you know, at the bar. That doesn't happen anymore now, obviously. Um, <laughs> And I said, yeah, okay. So she said, we need to go to the changing rooms first. And I thought, okay, fine, we'll go to the lockers, put my bag down, all the rest of it. And she took out and lit up a cigarette. She had a cigarette and she said, she said, I have to smoke in here because Bjorn doesn't let me smoke. He doesn't want me smoking. So I remember sitting with her in this real, quite surreal experience thinking, I'm with Bjorn Borg's fiancé and she's having a cigarette in the locker rooms because she doesn't want him to know that she's smoking. And um, Anyway, and then shortly after that, I uh, was robbed on the bus, and that was the end of my, my tennis career. Robbed on the bus. <laughs> um, well, hold on, I have to just ask really quickly. Did you see Bjorn at the tennis? Was he, was he at the club? I can't remember if can't he remember. was actually at the tournament. Um, yeah. uh, if he was actually at the I'll tell you who was at the tournament. It was Wojtek Feedback. I remember standing in a queue for the buffet, um, and he was in the queue in front of me and he was like number five in the world at the time, something like that. And I was just like, you know, like eyes out on stocks. Wojtek Feedback, the, uh, the Polish great who um, has had a very uh, vigorous post-tennis life as well that maybe you should read about it if you want. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a very prolific uh, character in tennis. Um, so, I guess you get married, you had your children. No, I went to university, um, I had a place at university, I went to Ed, uh, Edinburgh University, I did French with business studies. Um, Do you speak fluent French? I used to, yeah, I yeah. used to, I don't so much, you know, it's like anything, if you don't use it, you lose it. So I went to university and then I, uh, I went into various jobs and uh, I was working as a, with a confectionery company as a national account manager. I started off as a trainee rep and... Uh, candy. Yeah, candy, yeah, which maybe is where the sweet tooth comes from. But yeah, so I was doing that um, actually until I had Andy and um, that was when I had to give up my job because I had two kids 15 months apart and it was just impossible because my job involved a lot of traveling. And that was when we moved back to Dumblane, which is where I was from, to be closer to my family, uh, to have help with the kids. And I gave up my job, my car went with my job. I'd left Glasgow and all my friends and uh, my tennis club and everything over there. So um, back in Dumblane, feeling a bit trapped with two very, very little kids and uh, rejoined the tennis club that I'd been a member of when I was a kid and discovered there were still no coaches there. And I went over and volunteered a couple of hours a week. And that was how I got into coaching tennis, just as a, a volunteer. Amazing. Yeah. How did uh, Andy and Jamie get so good? Well, I think that... Who's responsible? Is it you? <laughs> I don't Is know about a, that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that when they were small, I wanted them to enjoy sport the same way that I'd enjoyed sport because for me, sport was never just about tennis. I played badminton for Scotland as well because you couldn't play tennis in the winter. Um, and I loved the team aspect of sport, but I played every sport that I could for my school. I was lucky to go to a girls' school, so we had hockey teams, netball teams, swimming teams, and I did everything. I mean, sport was a huge part of my life and also of my parents' lives. 
and I have a brother who's a golf pro, so I wanted my kids to enjoy sports. So from when they were very small, I was always playing with them, inside or outside, with a ball. That's the best. They pretty much did everything, everything except skiing. They tried everything when they were little. And as a result of having parents and grandparents who were very sporty and happy to play actively with them whenever, they developed really good hand-eye and foot-eye coordination skills from a very young age, really exceptional. And uh, it wasn't that we were teaching them, we were just playing with them in a way that, you know, we all used to just develop skills naturally through play. And that doesn't happen so much now, partly because of screens and kids sitting down and indoors too much and so forth. But. It, it, but these are the skills that underpin all sports, so it wouldn't have mattered what sports they ultimately had chosen to spend most of their time in. They'd have been able to be pretty good at them. So they, Andy was great at football. He could have gone down the footballing route, and Jamie had a three handicap at golf when he was 15. Oh, come on. Yeah, so they, you know, they were good at other things. Andy has a, a golf handicap of six now, and it's the first handicap that he ever had, and he only got it a few months ago when he started playing again from the hip surgery. He hadn't hit a golf ball for six years, never had a handicap before, and immediately gets a handicap of six. So it, my point is that you know, if we can encourage more parents to play actively with their kids and get kids outside and play naturally again, these skills can be developed without having to be coached. And nowadays, coaching has become such a thing. Programmed activity for kids after school because more parents work, more money, less time, etc. I think I made quick golf. I think you may have just... Uh, <laughs> Andy's a six with a replaced hip and uh, hasn't played in six years. That's unbelievable. What was the first moment that you knew your lives were going to be different? Well, I, I think um, I think you, you obviously you never know where you're going with something like this. I mean, when my kids started out playing tennis at our local club, it's fun. It's like a hobby, like lots of other hobbies that they were doing, and we had no idea at all that it, we would all end up doing what we currently do. But I think that when I think that when Andy won the Orange Bowl under 12s and Jamie had been in the final of it the year before, I mean, that was an eye-opener for us because we'd never been to America before. It was a big adventure for us. And then suddenly, one is in the final one year, one wins it the next year. And that's when I started to think, wow, I have no idea what to do next. What am I supposed to do with these two very talented, obviously among the best in the world for their age? And I'm also not stupid enough to think that just because you happen to be a good 11-year-old or 12-year-old means that you're going to be, uh, you know, a world-class adult player. So I, I think that was that was one that was one time, and I think the other time was really when when Andy won the U.S. Open Juniors in 2004, and I think that when I realised when he won that and all the Actually, all the obligations that we had to fulfill, I mean, he had to fulfill them, but I had to get them to them. You know, all the media things that he had to do, and then all the photographers at the airport when we got home and all the rest of it. And I thought, wow, you know, this is what, this is what our lives could be coming to. Um, those were probably the two times. And I read that you quit your job. <laughs> I did. I, you, quit, you, you quit your job with Tennis Scotland. I did. But they didn't understand that you needed to adjust your schedule. Well, I think, uh, you know, I was the national coach and I had a lot of really good juniors. It wasn't just Andy and Jamie. I had several others at different stages of development who were all international level. And we had no setup. We didn't own our own training center. I didn't have staff. I, did, I had a very small budget, you know, because tennis is such a minority sport in Scotland that Tennis Scotland doesn't have a lot of money. Sports Scotland doesn't recognize tennis as a major sport in terms of priority for our country. Why would it? And I couldn't get anybody to believe that we actually could produce world-class tennis players from our very small little base in Scotland. And uh, I thought that after US Open Juniors, that had been 10 years, I had been the national coach. So I'd started, when I started, Andy was seven, and now he was 17. And I'd had three Scottish boys playing in the US Open Juniors that year. And I was so sure that the significance of winning a junior Grand Slam, and the boys were in the semis of the doubles, would actually persuade them that we could all do it, um, uh, that we could produce tennis players in Scotland. And they absolutely weren't having it. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so I just thought, you know what? 
I've, I've been trying so hard for years and you're, I'm not going to get anybody to believe in me. I don't know if it was because of the whole tennis is a minority sport, we don't really do it, or because I was a woman, I suspect that did have something to do with it. And also I was the parent of two of the players, I suspect that had something to do with it as well. So I just decided that's it, um, I'm going to go and give my kids my, the best possible shot that I can. And it was a massive, massive risk because to have no salary, no car, no expenses, etc. Um, terrifying. Yeah, Terrifying. but I had to believe that winning something like the US Open Juniors would bring some sponsorship in. And, you know, sponsorship doesn't come just like that. You have to work at it. Did that happen? Did, did you sign a deal? Did, did Andy and, or, and Jamie, did you sign a deal with uh, uh, an agent to, to get funded? Did that happen? Yeah, we started to work with a management company and, uh, you know, and so, uh, some sponsorships came in, in, in terms of... Um, racket and clothing, uh, they came with money sponsorships, whereas prior to that they would probably only have been just provision of kit. So he won U.S. Open Juniors, turns pro. Yeah. The rest is history, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, what has been your involvement with the career in terms of the coaches, uh, Brad Gilbert, Lendl, Moresmo? Have you been a significant uh, participant in that decision making? Well, I think that what um, I think that what it's always been about uh, since Andy went to Barcelona when he was 15 to train, it's it's been about trying to find the right environment, the right coach at the right time. That's what it's all been about, and I mean, it's it's unusual to find any young player who stays with the same coach through every stage of their development. So it's always been about trying to find when when he's needed to move on for whatever reason, okay, what's next? And, you know, it's like everything, you know, I didn't know. Why would I know? I, 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 I would know some of these big players on the coaching side by name only or by face only. You don't know what they're like to work with. You don't know their personalities to be with day in and day out. So, you know, you have to listen to other people. You have to go a bit by trial and error. You have to do a little tryout and see what happens. And, you know, a lot a lot of the time it's hit and, hit and hope that it works. You, you, you don't know, and it's the same for every player. You, you, you don't know. You might know somebody by reputation, but you don't know if it's going to be the right personality fit or if... But you, you want to... You want someone who's got the expertise and the experience and, and the track record. And, you know, we've been very lucky with our coaches. I mean, Mark Pecci did an incredible job with Andy from sort of 18 to... Got him up very quickly inside the top 100 over a sort of a six-month period. I mean, he did an incredible job. And he was, you know, coach, mentor, friend, part parent, buddy on the road. It, he was. He did an amazing job. And um, But, yeah. For our listeners, Mark Pecci, uh, English player... Uh, long-time uh, tennis personality broadcaster coach. Yeah. And he got Andy into the upper echelon. Yeah, he went very quickly from uh, from Wimbledon 2005 to by the end of October. Uh, he was 64 in the world and he'd started that year 2005 at 350 and Mark started with him in July. You know, so July to, to then, I mean, Andy just went really, really fast. Mark Petchy. He, he has to take a lot of the credit for um, helping Andy through that because he had two young children. And, it, you know, for him, it was a big thing to go off on the road with a young kid um, and leave your, leave your own family behind. Um, but his, you know, his wife backed him to do it. And he did, he did a remarkable, remarkable job. That's not an easy thing, that transition period. Um, from there... Well, lots of you know, lots of different people at different stages, sure. and you learn something from everybody, and you move on when you're ready to move on. And sure. there's always different reasons for moving on, but you know, I think Andy's learned something from from everybody. And uh, you know, working with um, Amelie Moresmo was a, a huge uh, a huge thing um, because of the interest that it generated, and because it was a, a woman working in the, the men's game, and that brought a lot of profile, I think, to the whole female coach thing that women can work at the top of the game but they often don't get the opportunity so and it was a very cool thing uh, you know uh, Andy's been on the forefront of you know some of some of the more progressive maneuvers 
in terms yeah. of fairness and, and, and women's um, equality in sport. Um, yeah, he's not afraid to, to speak out and it, it makes a much bigger impact when when a man speaks out on behalf of the women. Um, well, the apple must not fall too far <laughs> from the tree. It's well, a great effort that he's done those things. Yeah, he's... Um, he, yeah, he's very popular in the women's locker room. <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, when you close your eyes and you think back to September 2015, um, the Davis Cup tie, what, what comes into your mind? Yeah, Great Britain played Australia semi-finals, Davis Cup. Um, it was a home tie. It was played in Glasgow, um, in the east end of Glasgow, which is a very impoverished uh, part of the city. And it was played in an athletics arena that was built for the Commonwealth Games. So um, a tennis court was laid in there. There were 8,000 people watching on, on each day. And, uh, packed. Packed and so noisy. Just, you know, indoor arenas tend to be more, more noisy anyway. But now, is that the Glasgow Celtic crowd coming it, for the tennis? Is that really what that is? <laughs> yeah, I think a, a, a little bit. It was um, certainly uh, the, the venue was opposite Celtic Park Stadium. But I think, you know, you wouldn't find any tennis courts in the east end of Glasgow at all. So, um, but, you know, I think for, for me, I, I, I watched certainly on the middle day, which was the doubles day, which was going to be a critical one because we were pretty sure that Andy would win both his singles and we needed to win the doubles to go through to the final. And so, you know, Andy and Jamie ended up playing the doubles. Um, tough thing for Andy to play three days in a row, so we weren't sure if he would play, but it was his goal for 2015 was to try and win the Davis Cup and he put absolutely body and soul into doing it. And uh, I watched them walking out, you know, 8,000 people. The noise was just incredible. There were pipers uh, playing. And they were led out by the captain, who was Leon Smith, who was, he's a bit like my third son. He started with me as a apprentice coach when he was 20 years old. And now he heads up men's tennis and obviously successful Davis Cup captain for many years. And I just watched them all walk, watched them walking out. And I thought, you know, this is incredible because from where I came from, when there was no indoor course, there was no profile, you never got more than a one-line result in the, you know, the roundup section of our sports pages in the papers. And suddenly we had the World Cup of Tennis semi-final in Glasgow, in the East End, with Scottish players and a Scottish captain. And it was, for, for me, it was a real, wow, this is how far we have come from, like, starting with absolutely nothing. But I feel like, I, I feel like I read that it was a, for you, it's a, it was a sort of a watershed moment. Yeah, it was because I just, I remember just sitting there and looking around and thinking I never would have believed that I would witness something like this in Scotland for tennis, never. And did that, amongst other things, motivate you to keep it rocking, coaching and... and, and well, I think you, what you realize is it's just such a massive opportunity to grow the game in our country. Yeah. You know, there's a massive interest, a huge profile. Um, and I think what disappoints me enormously is that we've never been able to capitalize on that because we haven't had strong leadership in our, in our governing body. There hasn't been really very much investment from the LTA, which is a very wealthy governing body and it's our British governing body. Very little investment has found its way up to Scotland. And I think since 2006, we haven't had any new indoor public pay and play facilities built and with our weather we need indoor facilities to be able to play all year round, to coach all year round, for the industry to keep going all year round. So uh, that's a, a massive, massive source of frustration to me. That's, in, that's unbelievable. What a, what a joke. What was your experience like as Fed Cup captain? Um, I did uh, almost five years um, with Fed Cup. I think when we started, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me because we were in the, one of the, the Euro-Africa zones. So we were playing in Israel, 16 teams in a zone, and two teams get out of it into a playoff for the world group at the end of it. It's really tough, uh, tough, Hard. tough zone. And, it, you know, it's in February. It's right after Australian Open. It's usually in quite an obscure place. Uh, there's not a lot of profile. Unless you're the home team, there's not a lot of support of fans. It was For me, it was a little bit like playing in a club match, you know, because nobody came to watch. There was no media there. We had to build our own profile. We did that through social media and through blogging on 
you know, on um, BBC site and so forth. But you had good players. I, I feel like your moment there was also a watershed moment for women's tennis. Yeah, we had in we the had Commonwealth. Some, we had some good players. We had uh, you know our our top two were Elena Baltasha and Anne Vong, who are just incredible competitors, uh, great women. Uh, fantastic leaders of the team and 20, probably 28 years old maybe then when they when, when I started, so getting towards the end of their career and they had Laura Robson and Heather Watson as very young ones coming oh, up, so I had a real mix in the team back then. Um, Not Conta? No, I didn't have Conta because okay. she wasn't British at that point, she didn't have British oh, citizenship. she was Hungarian. Uh, Australian maybe, I think. Oh. I think her parents are Australian but she lived in Australia. So she didn't get a British passport till 2013, and then I, I brought her into the team. Then by that time, um, Baltasha and Kyotovon were almost ready to to retire. But we never had really had the strength and depth um, to make a, a huge impact, or we didn't have anybody at the very top to allow us to get into and survive in the world group. So now we we do because Conta obviously is 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 up at the top of of the game and we've Playing got great. one or two younger players starting to come through. But I think my wider concern was always about growing the women's side of the game, getting more girls playing, getting more women coaching, that having a bigger base and a bigger pool and a better pathway for players and for coaches would allow us to be a strong women's tennis nation for the long term. You know, um, that became more of my concern. I mean, you've had an unbelievable life in tennis. I mean, yeah. do you have, I would imagine you're very satisfied with your accomplishments and achievements. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's amazing. I never would have imagined myself doing what I'm currently doing. But, it, you know, I still have an enormous passion for tennis and for growing the game. And, you know, like I said before, I think that tennis is competing with so many other things for people's attention now that we have to work harder than we've ever worked before to get more people into our sport and keep people in our sport. And for me, that's all about the workforce. It's all about coaches, you know, because tennis is on the, you know, like we're losing out in numbers. I mean, in, in our country, we've lost 30% of the women and girls playing tennis since 2005. We're 30% down. And part of that is more women working. Uh, all the, the advances in, uh, you know, the gym, exercise classes, running, things that people can do easily, don't need somebody to do it with, it's an hour of your time, etc., etc. Well, if the LTA is not building courts, that's a shame. Well, if they would, I think, yes, they, they have actually this summer, they announced a commitment um, to, to build something like 96 new indoor centers. But, you know, these things, they take time, but at least it's a commitment time. and it's in the right direction. But, it, you know, it won't happen in my lifetime. I mean, by the time you get a plan and planning permission, you're probably talking oh, about on. five, six years down the line. Take, these things take a long time to put into position. But it, but I think, I mean, in my, in my working lifetime, I would have loved to have seen more things happening when Andy and Jamie were still at the top of the game so that, you know... But I, I, I still have my passion for it. I've never been become institutionalized, and uh, I'm still trying to grow the women's side of the game and uh, get more people playing. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all about numbers, and it, 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 sport is so competitive now. We're competing with entertainment, so you see sport becoming more like needing a mix of sport plus entertainment to engage people. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. It's just word association. We go very fast. Okay. Tennis parents. What do you mean? What have I got to do here? It's just a word association. When, you, when I say it, just what comes into your mind. Tennis parents. Yeah, I think um, unbelievably important. You know, in an individual sport, the onus is on the parents to make everything happen. Favorite city? Uh, Melbourne. Favorite tournament? Australian Open. Favorite court? Uh, Wimbledon Centre Court. Coco Golf. Amazing. Most Scottish thing about you? Uh, Bloody-mindedness. Haggis. 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 Um, Haggis. Yeah, unusual, uh, very filling. Not everybody's cup of tea. Yours? Yeah, I like it. Hurling. A dangerous. Brexit. Disaster. Favorite forehand? Uh, Steffi Graf. Favorite backhand? 
Roger Federer. Favorite volleys? Roger Federer. Favorite serve? Uh, Nick Kyrgios. This is our fifth and final set. Call this the queen of the court. If you could be the queen of tennis for a moment and could make a change in the sport with one sweep of the racket, without any aggravation, what would it be? I'd have uh, more women in decision-making positions. More women in decision-making positions. Judy Murray, um, first and foremost, uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Um, we just can't thank you enough. <laughs> You're welcome. Nice uh, to talk to you. Love it. Uh, you are released. We're done. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, it is Stan Smith September. To hear the interview, get entered into the giveaway, and help keep the under-review train moving, head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate all of your support. Huge thank you to Judy Murray. Big thank you to our Patreon subscriber, Katura Anderson Chivers. I am looking forward to hitting balls with you on either side of the pond. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your pickleball partners, your haggis preparers, and championship-winning sons. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Under Review Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. To catch some clips of some of our interviews, please check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binning did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>